If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Knights in shining armor, damsels in distress, castles, chivalry and courtly love, heroic quests, dragons, King Arthur. Signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is like... Merlin. His name. I wouldn't if I were you. Camelot. I will establish here at Camelot a new way of ruling for you, the people. The Knights of the Round Table. The Holy Grail. To reclaim the holiest relic in all of Christendom. The cup that Jesus drank from the last Think of King Arthur and the medieval romance and a huge number of images and tropes and cliches spring to mind. Where does all this come from? So I'm Usha Vishnuvajala, a lecturer at Cardiff University in English Literature. And my research is really on two main areas. So I work on late medieval literature, especially Arthurian literature, mostly in Middle English. And then I also work quite a bit on medievalism, so the post-medieval reception and adaptation and engagement with uh, medieval literature and culture. And the main area where these two come together is um, very much, for me, Arthurian literature. So the problem with talking about the medieval period, or medieval literature, is that it's an incredibly long period of time. We're talking about a thousand years, from around 450 to 1450 CE, which is very easily conflated in the popular imagination. So before you even start talking about English literature in this period, you've got to understand what we mean by English. So just in case you've forgotten, here it is in under four minutes. Back in the 5th century in Britain, you had Celtic people speaking the language that is the ancestor of today's Welsh, and also related to Irish, Scottish Gaelic and other Celtic languages. Latin was also spoken because the area had been under Roman control since the time of Julius Caesar. But none of these languages would ultimately affect how English initially developed. That was down to various Germanic tribes that invaded from modern-day Denmark and Germany, like the Jutes and the Angles and the Saxons. They all spoke similar Germanic languages and they fought the established Celts out of large parts of Britain. Eventually, the Angles became the dominant group and their nation became the land of the Angles, Anglaland, and what they spoke became Englisk, which slowly began to differ from what was being spoken over on the mainland, as languages tend to do when they're cut off from each other. So this was all happening around the 7th century, and this language is what we now call Old English. If you look at it on a page, you can see that there are clearly lots of words that look a bit like modern English, but it's still really, really different. And it's obviously much harder then to understand if it's spoken. So it sounded a little something like this. What we gar denna in yard a hum, theid kuninga thrym yfrunun, utha edelingas elden fremedun. 
In the last episode on dragons, I was talking about Beowulf slaying a dragon. What you just heard is the opening of that poem. So the words in Old English we use today are the really fundamental ones. Stuff like live, love, fight, food, drink, day, night. You know, that kind of thing. At this point then, a few other languages were added to the mix. You still had Latin being used by the church and by educated elites. And then there were Viking invasions in the 8th and 9th century. So you can throw in some Old Norse there as well. And then, in 1066, the Normans arrived and brought their language with them, which was kind of French. It was Norman French, not the same as, say, the French of Paris. But the important thing is that it was a Romance language, not a Germanic one. So you suddenly had a ruling elite speaking Anglo-Norman French. This class of society would all have used Latin too, as would the church. And then the lower classes, i.e. the vast, vast majority of the country, continued about their business in the same language they'd been speaking before the Normans arrived. Eventually, though, the people and the languages mixed, and this mix is what we now call Middle English. It's the language of Chaucer. When that Aprile, with his surest soldier, the daughter of Marcher, hath passed to the road, and bothered every viner in sweet liqueur... Sounds a little bit strange, a little difficult to understand, but it's much, much closer to our English today. Essentially, all the foundational, basic words remained Germanic, and what we might consider the formal or sophisticated or literary words were all French. The poor people kept the animals, sheep, cow, calf, Germanic words. The rich people ate the animals, mutton, beef, pork, French words. By the late medieval period, even if the more educated could also speak French and Latin, everybody spoke English. Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales in the 1380s, and lots of the stories you'll hear about in this episode, like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example, are from around this time too. And then the language continued to change and develop until by Shakespeare's time, it was what we now call Early Modern English. And really by that point, with a little bit of practice, any modern English speaker can understand it. And that is the history of English, vastly oversimplified in under four minutes. So, 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 where so, were we? Where were we? Yes, Dr. Vishnavadula works mostly on texts from the later medieval period. So some of the 12th century texts I study are in Old French and in Anglo-Norman, which is the kind of English dialect of French, I guess we might say. I work mostly on kind of what we might think of as the tail end of the medieval period. So the 14th and uh, a little bit into the 15th centuries and uh, what we might call late Middle English. So not so, so different from Shakespeare's English, but, but still still different enough to warrant having a different name. So I want to talk about the medieval romance. And as we heard at the beginning of this episode, we have so many images and tropes in popular culture around this type of tale. Knights and dragons and princesses and King Arthur and Sir Lancelot and heroic quests and courtly love and on and on. The word romance, which we now use in connection with love, comes from these stories, which were romances because they were written in a romance language, i.e. French. We've been reading these stories for not far off a thousand years now. So how did they first emerge? I think most scholars would agree on the origin of medieval romance is kind of the late 12th century. And it, it does start as a French genre of literature and romance at the time just meant a ro- romance language and specifically meant French as opposed to Latin. So it was a, a vernacular genre and that was 
important because it meant different kinds of writing, different kinds of audiences, different topics were sort of acceptable. And some of the things that we think of as cliches now do appear very early on. So kind of knights and ladies and what we might call with a small r romantic love. Things that also appear in the 12th century in Cartier de Troyes romances, um, who's often kind of treated as the originator of, of romance, include a very early mention of the, the Holy Grail. Although it's not holy, it's just a grail. And no one is sure what it is. It's a serving platter of some kind at the time, um, not yet associated with the blood of Christ at all or anything like that. And um, the round table appears in the 12th century. Certainly the idea of knights going on quests and kind of having battles and things. We maybe typically think of these romances as well as being solely concerned with the upper echelons of society. Wealthy kings and huge castles, splendidly dressed women, luxurious banquets attended by knights and lords and so on. But this wasn't entirely the case in the later Middle Ages, because at this point, everyone was consuming these tales. So people of very different kind of classes are reading it. We still get some of those types of depictions. I mean, you can see in um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example, the descriptions of this beautiful feast and the beautiful clothes and jewels and all this kind of stuff. But we also get more romances towards the end of the Middle Ages that depict Something closer to what we might think of as regular people, a bit more kind of depiction of um, of daily life, even occasionally financial struggle. So there's a lot more kind of divergence towards the end of the Middle Ages, which I think is just a feature of the fact that it's a genre that had wide appeal and wide readership and started out as something very concerned with the um, very rarefied environment of the court. So the romance had a huge widespread appeal. But there's one story above all others that stands out when we think of this period, and that is, of course, the Arthurian romance, the tale of King Arthur and the many, many variations and spin-offs based around the legendary king, which have been continuously told and retold century after century right up to the present day. Historical records for an actual King Arthur around the end of the 5th century are pretty sketchy. He may or may not have been a heroic Welsh defender of Britain from the invading Saxons. He may have been an amalgamation of several people from this period, or he may be entirely invented. For the purposes of the literature, though, this doesn't really matter. King Arthur, as we know him, and all of the events and people around him, Excalibur, Merlin, Camelot, the Round Table, these are literary inventions. And they began around the 12th century. Arthur is mentioned in some earlier texts, but as the literary kind of body, it really takes off in the 12th century. So to whatever extent it may be inspired by a historical figure from the 6th century or, or the 5th century, that is largely, actually, I would say, not really relevant to what takes off in the 12th century, which I would argue is very much about what's going on in the 12th century and kind of the concerns that people have, political and, and social and otherwise, and the way that this figure kind of becomes a, a cornerstone for narratives that engage with these questions of the legitimacy of political rule and these kinds of things. So Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia, a History of the Kings of Britain from the 1130s, is in some ways, maybe kind of the, the ur-text for most medieval Arthurian literature. And it really is about a long fictional history of British monarchs and their rule. But, but what people take away from that is we have this story of this contested figure who is a monarch who briefly kind of holds violence at bay and, and unites this island. And that becomes the sort of background against which all of these interesting stories can be told and questions can be raised about how we assess the legitimacy of someone's political rule and what it means for his nephews to be holding their own lands and challenging him and all this kind of stuff. So to the extent that there is a kind of 
origin point for these narratives, I would say it's both that text, but then also kind of this period of political instability that's happening when Jeffrey is writing. So if we've got our essential elements of the King Arthur tale checklist, how many of them are here in this early period? So a few things are are there. I mean, certainly the idea of Arthur's weird conception, which is is weird only in that it it has this kind of weird magical element to it. And his parents are, his mother is married to someone else and is, you know, depending on the text, um, tricked or or coerced into sleeping with his father um, to conceive him. I think what is recognizable there is really Arthur is this kind of young monarch who then gets known for, is known for his sort of battle prowess. And that continues um, even as these other things spring up later on and and the kind of courtliness and the knights and the, um, all of that. We do see the the beginnings of some characters who will get developed as knights later on. So Peridor, who's named Peridor in the Welsh romance, but becomes Percival in French and English later on and, and German as well. We see Arthur having a a kind of magical sword, the beginning of that. I think we see the kind of beginning of Arthur creating what we might call an international coalition as well. So um, certainly elements that are recognizable and that we do see in the later texts, but maybe not what you would expect to see if you're thinking about knights and ladies and horses and um, all that kind of stuff. But while Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote his tale in Britain, this story of a legendary British king wasn't really that popular locally at the time. That would only come later. It was actually far more popular in continental Europe. I would argue that it doesn't really become an English story until after it becomes a European story. So Geoffrey is writing in Latin, and as best as we know, he's associated with Monmouth, so kind of on the, the border of England and Wales. And Arthur is still there. He's a, he's a British monarch, but British in the sense, um, the kind of older sense of meaning Welsh, essentially. And then it gets picked up by two writers almost immediately, Was and Lawman. Uh, so Lawman was writing in very early Middle English, so that is an English text. And Was is writing in a dialect of Old French, and he provides a source for Chrétien de Troyes, who's writing in France. So in French, but not in the, the kind of French of England. And it's really, other other than a couple of texts, including Lawman, it doesn't really take off as an English genre until after Chrétien, until um, really until the 14th century, when we get this explosion of Arthurian romances in English. And by then, we've had a lot of French texts, including Chrétien's and continuations of Chrétien's, because Chrétien's story of the Grail is unfinished. So, of course, people immediately pick it up and then start to complete it in different ways, which is where we get things like the the long history of the Grail being associated with Chrétien. Christ and all this kind of stuff. So in a way, it really takes off kind of all over Western Europe before it becomes a major part of English literature. And we do see Arthur get kind of, you know, anglicized or Englishized more and more in the 14th and 15th centuries, where his Welshness in- increasingly is kind of erased. And he gets more and more described, you know, at first um, he's a British king, and then he starts to actually kind of get described as like an English king towards the end of the Middle Ages. So we have this explosion in popularity of the tale in Britain from the 14th century. And one of its recurring features, as Dr. Vishnavajula mentions, was the holy, or maybe not so holy, grail. This is one part of the Arthurian legend that is quite nicely illustrative of the ways different meanings get attached to different elements of the story, depending on the historical context. The grail is variously a cup or chalice or a stone or maybe a dish or a platter. 
It may contain magical powers or hold the blood of Christ, or it may just be a medieval MacGuffin for all those heroic knights to quest after. There's a lot of room for kind of people to do what they want with it, which they, they very much do. But it's just a kind of a dish or serving platter that's part of this weird magical procession that the Knight Percival is watching with no idea what's going on. He only knows that there's like magic and it's very strange. And there's also a bleeding lance in this procession. And then it, it really is the um, the body of text called the, the Lancelot Grail cycle sometimes or the Vulgate cycle um, that are these continuations of Chrétien written in the early 13th century by a group of uh, very religious writers, including Cistercian monks, who turn it into this very holy Christian object and write this long backstory for it and kind of tie it to, to kind of biblical narratives. And so that's where we get a version of what people might recognize today as, you know, the, the cup that holds the blood of Christ. But in its original iteration, it's not that at all in Thomas Mallory's Mort Arthur in the 15th century, which is probably the most influential still uh, medieval English Arthurian text. There's a long section in that where, where they're searching for the grail, the knights are searching for the grail, and they do find it or achieve it. But the, the grail itself as an object there becomes, I think, considerably less important than the, the idea of the quest and how that becomes a defining feature of this community. So in that sense, we see between the 12th and 15th centuries like a huge shift in the significance of what a single kind of object from this fictional world means. Other aspects, too, take on different significances at different points in time. There's the political, dynastic element, Arthur, of interest, for example, in Elizabethan times. It becomes interesting kind of politically at the very end of the 16th century when there are these debates about who's going to succeed Elizabeth because she's getting old and she has no heirs. People get interested actually in Geoffrey of Monmouth again um, in the idea of James as a sort of Arthurian figure. And so it comes up certainly again and again. But let's skip a century or two and bring things a little more up to date. Before doing that, though, I wanted to take a very quick break to tell you about Headstuff Plus. This is the membership scheme. You can join up and support Words to the Fact, support me to make more great episodes, to make bonus episodes, of which there are several already and many more to come. If you become a member, you will be supporting me and every show in the network, and you will in turn get access to the bonus content from my show, but also from every other show as well. There are other benefits too, like discounts and merchandise and on future live shows. I'm really hoping to do another Worst Side Effect live show at some point soon. The other previous ones were a lot of fun, so keep an eye out for that. But that's just one of the many benefits of becoming a member of Headstuff Plus. You can find out all about it at headstuffpodcasts.com. By the 19th century, the King Arthur story was well established with most, if not all, of the common features we know today. And the peak in interest in the story around this time was for a variety of reasons. I would say it, probably the resurgence has to do with a few different things that are going on. One is kind of antiquarianism and interest in old things, including old books. One is the development of um, English literary studies and medieval studies as academic disciplines in this period. And then I think one is also nationalism. Um, and we see interest in Arthur certainly to do with English nationalism and actually also German nationalism. Um, but we also see interest in it in, in American nationalism. And so for Twain, you know, there's kind of this sense of his contemporary American character, like going back in time and then being really superior to King Arthur and, and all his knights. 
This is Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, kind of early time travel tale in which the protagonist, an engineer from contemporary Connecticut, gets banged in the head and wakes up to find himself in Arthurian times. He then becomes involved in all sorts of adventures, using his knowledge of 19th century engineering and science to the horror and amazement and awe of the local people. Jump forward a little bit to the 20th century and you have T.H. White, author of The Sword in the Stone and other Arthurian tales collected together as the once and future king. So, I mean, we, it's, I think, 40 years from Twain to T.H. White, who's um, deeply, deeply critical of, of different kinds of nationalism and of war. I mean, he's a conscientious objector to World War II, which is really kind of a, a stance to take. Um, and he writes this kind of epic Arthurian novel that is all about critiquing nationalism. I mean, it's about other things as well, but that's, that's what's most interesting to me. So, you know, I think we see Arthurian texts popping up throughout that kind of 500-year stretch. But there are certain points at which it, there's, a, I think, a big glut of them. And those are maybe two of them, the kind of 19th century and maybe the interwar period and the beginning of World War II. And then again in the 1980s. And then I would say actually again kind of now in the last 20 years or so. The great thing about the Arthurian romance is that it has its basis in myth and legend. And so it can be adapted and retold in any number of ways. It's also set within its own fully developed world with a well-established set of characters, Percival, Gawain, Lancelot, Merlin, the Fisher King, Morgan le Fay, Guinevere, and so on. And they can be given their own plot lines, lesser characters can be given new backstories, or entirely new characters can be introduced. There just has to be enough Arthurian elements for it to remain in the canon. And as with any franchise or imaginary world, ancient or contemporary, there are plenty of benefits to being associated with a well-known brand. And we, we see this even in some medieval texts where there's like one mention of Arthur in a whole poem, right? And, and I teach a couple of texts like that when I do Arthurian literature. And we, we often will have a conversation about this. You know, what does this text get out of this like one mention of King Arthur that then ties this to the, it ties this into this existing genre? And sometimes I think it's just name recognition. Sometimes I think it's also that, that a text might be picking up on or critiquing elements of the kind of Arthurian, you know, canon, we might say. I think it's always a good question to ask, like, what does this text get out of being Arthurian? Often, I mean, something like The Green Knight, the recent film, is obviously very, 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 very deeply Arthurian. But then something like Guy Ritchie's Legend of the Sword, which came out a few years ago, I've kind of wondered because it has so many elements of other types of narrative and, and it's kind of set in this weird, you know, there are Vikings and there are, there's a kind of Moses story and it's London, but it looks like Rome. I've kind of wondered what it gets out of being about King Arthur. Like, what if it was just about a man who was pulled from a river as a baby and then became a, you know, grew up in a brothel and became a brawler. It's kind of a, always interesting to think about, you know, what the text gets out of being Arthurian. So what about some more contemporary Arthurian texts? What do they get out of being Arthurian? And what do we get out of them? I think since the 80s, at least, there's also been a big interest in kind of feminist Arthurian telling. So, you know, there have been so many young adult novels and, and TV shows and films that appeal to that kind of age range and that I 
would describe as more feminist. So um, there's a, a novel called Legend Born that um, a lot of my colleagues have been talking about recently. And there's a young adult novel called Avalon High, which is set contemporary setting in a in high school. And I, I believe the Arthur character actually is a, a girl in this in this novel. And I think it was made into a film as well. And I'm kind of getting to the point now where a lot of my students are of an age where they read it when they were 11 or 12 or 13. So there's, you know, a lot of I think there's a lot of room to do Arthurian retellings that are feminist in some way. I, I would argue, actually, that the, the Green Knight, the recent film, is really interesting in that regard as well, um, that it does a lot to kind of bring the women that are in the background of Arthurian texts into the forefront. I was less familiar, I have to admit, with New Age Arthur. A few years ago, I was uh, I was <laughs> researching yoga classes and I came across a like an Arthurian, uh, like Arthurian priestess, goddess yoga retreat um, <laughs> in, in Glastonbury, um, hosted by a, a teacher whose who's teaching I was, I was very familiar with and who's American, which is how I came across it. And, you know, it was this kind of very expensive week-long yoga retreat, but it was tied up in King Arthur and New Agey goddess stuff and some sort of ceremony where they're going to sacrifice something, but it was vegan, so they were going to sacrifice a, like a melon instead of a, a plant, <laughs> a cantaloupe instead of an antelope, I guess. So what about a few recommendations then? Yeah, I mean, there are, I would say that certainly, uh, Lower Reese the Green Knight, I think is really excellent and provocative and it raises so many questions and it's so smart and I, I really, really recommend it. I really enjoyed the BBC Merlin and that was mostly before I really started getting deep into studying this stuff, but I think it's a really smart way of kind of using the framework of, of King Arthur to, to tell stories that are very much interesting to contemporary audiences and that make you think. And I, I think the humor, especially in that series, was very much in keeping with the, the Middle English Arthurian tradition, which is often very funny, even though it's tragic. I think that's something that a lot of Arthurian adaptations kind of don't do. They don't really engage with humor and kind of low humor, too. Um, so I really enjoyed that aspect of, of that series. The medieval romance is over 800 years old, going right back to the earliest point at which English was even in a form we can easily recognise today. And the Arthurian romance has been there from the very beginning. It's been used to amalgamate disparate myths and legends into a unifying narrative to justify and criticise nationalist politics. It's been attached to and mixed with pagan legends, Christian myths and real-life historical characters. And it's a story that's grown to take in an ever-widening number of characters, plots and concerns over the centuries, always reflecting back what people at the time are thinking and feeling, fears and anxieties and hopes. But of course, ultimately, the stories have remained such a central part of popular culture because they are usually entertaining. There's magic and romance, wizards and dragons and princesses, heroic quests, fierce battles. What's not to like? That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. And several thank yous on this one to Cormac for the Old Irish, James for the Latin, production assistance from Marissa Brown and artwork by Matt Mann. And of course, thanks to Dr. Vishnu Vajula. She has written loads of different stuff on this area. So if you are interested, check it out. And I will put links to all of her work on the website, which is wttepodcast.com. That is the home of the Words to That Effect podcast. And there are links, full transcripts, images, all the episodes and lots more there. 
And if you want to support the show on Headstuff Plus, then you can have a look at headstuffpodcast.com where you can find out all the details. Thanks so much. See you next time. That was good gunning. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. Plus. 